for Thanks for Your Service. Thanks for Your Service is a news and information resource and its focus is on historical topics relating to the Australian military. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search for Thanks for Your Service. Our website is www.thanksforyourservice.net. In our last podcast, we learnt about the most senior Australian killed in the Boer War, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Edward Ernest Umpleby. In this podcast, we're joined by Jason McGregor, who chats to us about Victorian military history. Joining us on the line from Melbourne is Secretary of the Military History Heritage Victoria, Inc., is Jason McGregor. Jason, many thanks for joining us today. Thanks, David, for having me. Now, following on from our last podcast, where we were introduced to Lieutenant Colonel Umpleby, who was the most senior Australian killed in the Boer War, and he was also there representing Victoria military forces at the stage. Now, where is a good place to start with Victoria pre-Federation from a military history perspective? Well, there's quite a lot, but Umpleby is a great place to start in, in that he served throughout most of southwestern Victoria at some point. And, and when, he, when he left to go to uh, the Boer War, he had previously been commandant of places such as Fort Queenscliff and uh, uh, Warrnambool and other locations and, and, and Ballarat. So he, he's a very good example of that colonial era of, well, the later part of the colonial era, the sort of 1870s to 1900. Um, because it, not only that, it was obviously very successful. The Fort Queenscliff Museum has a spectacular photograph of him uh, as the CEO of the fort, standing at the guardhouse, which is still there. You can still see the guardhouse, and he's standing there, and he has a couple of cadets sitting on the ground with him, and one of them is a cadet Coxon, and the other one is cadet Monash. Um, so it's a, quite a significant sort of connection. Um, but as a younger man, he served from uh, Portland Port Ferry, uh, Warrnambool, as I said, and basically in everywhere sort of inland from there um, before heading off to the Anglo-Boer War um, and not returning home. Um, bit of an interesting character as well. In the late 1889 or thereabouts, uh, I'm trying to remember the exact year, but we were investing in armaments for Port Phillip Bay. Um, and there was a company in Magdeburg in, in, in Germany uh, called Grusenberg. Uh, and uh, the man Grusen, uh, later, not long after, uh, well, before, well, around the time of the Boer War, but after Umfelby had visited him, he sold the company to the Krupp company. And we all know how successful their product was during the First World War. Um, but uh, Umpleby was tasked as a, uh, I think he was a first lieutenant. Um, he was sent on our behalf to Magdeburg um, to study these armaments and see if they, and, and report back on whether any of these things were viable for Australia. Um, I think he was involved in a proposal that basically showed that it wasn't all that viable. I mean, it was £15,000 to buy this stuff. But one of the things he did bring back was a 
there. It's a catalogue of photographs of what what Grusenberg was building at the time. So their armaments, their cannons, their uh, pop-up turrets, most of which you would, people might remember from the Maginot Line. That was all made by this German company and used to fire back at them, which is quite amazing. Um, and um, Fulby uh, brought this uh, document back, which went on display in Melbourne during the, the uh, Melbourne Exhibition. And then it was donated to the artillery school at Queenscliff. And it sort of disappeared. And uh, we relocated it. We refound it, uh, found it again uh, a couple of uh, years ago and restored it. And it has his signature inside. And he's um, a travelled around man. Now, you mentioned Forts Queenscliff, um, which dates back from 1860. Now, you also had a, a linkage with Fort Queenscliff. Maybe you can tell us about that and then a little bit about the history of Fort Queenscliff as well, if you could. Well, I, I stumbled upon the place uh, as a volunteer. I, I volunteered with the Australian Army History Unit and um, three years ago retired as the president of the Museum Association. Um, I thought I should go and get a paid job. And uh, it was a fascinating 17 years. We the, the the fort in itself was the command fort for all the defences of Fort Phillip. There's a uh, an excellent book that's a, uh, written by um, some of the volunteers there uh, about the Port Phillip defence defences. Um, but uh, one of the first things I I saw entering the museum, which was it's an underground bunker, was this brass. Um, a memorial to Charles Humphrey, which started my interest in learning more about him, and two other uh, gentlemen who, who passed away. But Humphrey became significant because he was not only the CO of the fort um, prior to leaving to go to the Boer War, he was also a founder of the local bowling club, which still exists today. Um, and there is a house on the Esplanade called Maytone, which was built for him as the CEO, which later became an officer's mess and, and, and other things. Uh, it's for sale if any of your listeners have a large chunk of money. Uh, um, but the, the significance of Fort Queenscliff being slightly within the heads itself, you could see most of the bay. That's what became the, the, the command post. It has the, the uh, second main telegraph station in Victoria, so obviously they can send a message through. Um, and has a little bit of a claim to fame in that while the reports at the time, and, and uh, which were slightly wrong and have been quoted many times incorrectly since, uh, it didn't fire the first shot of the First World War. It ordered the first shot to be fired from Point Lepidium which is across the bay. But uh, the newspapers of the day uh, misprinted it and it became a myth for quite a long time. Um, but basically, uh, the Fultz, the German freighter, was leaving Melbourne and um, heading out at its maximum speed of 11 knots. Uh, and it, uh, the, the uh, First World War was declared and a, a command was uh, phoned through to Queenscliff to stop the Fultz. And um, the signal station there sent a message up to the fire command station, also within the fort, 
that uh, did all the bearings and everything else and determined that the best uh, uh, cross of the bow shot would come from Point Nepean, uh, from gun number one, I think it was. And uh, the, the shot was fired and uh, a little bit of a tussle going on board the ship, but the pilot managed to convince the captain that the next one would probably be. Um, I don't know if you know too much about the story or if the listeners do, but over the years, many people have claimed a lot about this first shot. Even our museum had um, the shell uh, all nicely sh- uh, shellacked up and mounted to a bit of wood with a little plaque saying um, the shell that fired the first shot. But this, of course, isn't accurate. Um, these shells uh, can be found in a lot of museums around Australia, which, seeing as there's only uh, one real shot fired, it's hard to imagine why there'd be so many uh, cartridges. But more importantly, the particular gun didn't use a shell. Uh, it was just a projectile and bags of cordite. Um, but people wanted to immortalise this famous shot and um, uh, it, the sort of myths abound from these things, but uh, like it, you know, the projectile skimmed across the water and landed in somebody's paddock. Well, the bloke who claimed that was in the opposite direction to the actual firing line. So there's a lot of uh, stuff out there. Again, great books been written about it, um, which I'm sure people can find online. Um, there's, yeah. Is there also uh, a claim that the same gun from Fort Nepean also fired the first Allied shot of World War Two? There is a claim, but it's unverified. And the claim also says things like um, it was firing against a, a basically a Tasman ferry. Um, that it took out a lighthouse, you know, all this sort of sort of stuff. But we haven't been able to. There's no logbooks that, in, that give us an indication. Whereas the, there is a lot of data on the on, on the first shot. The hiccup with the first shot, in many ways, one of the where the myths sort of come from. One was the, the fact that it was reported the next day to have been fired from Queensland, um in the newspapers, and. The other thing is that uh, that happens quite a lot is the photograph of the first shot was actually taken some weeks later and set up. So some of the people that are in the photograph were not the gun crew on the actual day because by the stage the photograph was taken, we were well and truly at war and they had moved on to other uh, areas. Um, and subsequently, uh, again, some volunteers at Fort Queen's Creek, uh, led by Keith Clinton, did a lot of research into this, and they they have been able to identify the people in the photo and also identify the people in the gun crew, um, which is quite an achievement when, when you think that logbooks and things of that era are also missing. They're just, I don't know, I, I guess they've been souvenired. But... Um, the Second World War One, we haven't been able to find any data other than, than than anecdote. But some of the things that have been interesting in terms of anecdotes, Second World War related, uh, would be Nabua Fujita. Um, this it was a Japanese uh, pilot who um, had a, a what we well what the Allies called a Glen float plane, and uh, he was in a submarine off King Island, and they uh, launched the. Um, reassemble the boat on deck and the submarine 
And uh, then he flew over Melbourne for a bit. And, and uh, there's some rumour that, that eventually it was worked out that it was Japanese and aircraft anti-aircraft guns were fired upon him, but that didn't really happen. Um, he did the same thing over Sydney not long before the midget submarines. So, uh, but Nabua Fujita is an interesting fellow in, in himself. Not only did he fly over Australia and 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 uh, survive the war, he's the only Japanese uh, pilot to have bombed the U.S. mainland. Um, same submarine, same mission, if you like, get information. But while he was flying over the Oregon State Forest, he dropped an incendiary bomb with the intention of uh, burning down the forest. Uh, it failed, um, but he was made an honorary citizen of the town uh, in the late 1970s. Mm. So just uh, amazing. It's a complete side story, but um, he flew over Queenscliff. Um, there's also um, stories about the, the well, Fort Queenscliff after World War II became the staff college and then the, well, sorry, the Army Staff College and then became the Staff College of Combined Services. Um, and we've had many people from right around the world go through a staff college. Um, so the fort has been continuously occupied as part of the garrison town. We started in 1860 thereabouts with just a bunch of, a couple of guns on the, um, on Shortland's Bluff. The interesting thing about these guns was that they were naval guns. They were literally straight off ships and they came with naval training. The gun crews were volunteers, which is significant. Um, and they were local and, uh, they were trained to essentially fire a gun that, is at sea firing upon another something that's also at sea. So they weren't very accurate in their training until uh, they did basically their own maths and uh, established a six-page manual on how to use these guns themselves, which they self-printed. Uh, the interesting thing about that is that, that these days the manual would be much larger. Yeah. Uh, these guys had nutted it down based on one of the vessels is not moving. Um, you would have thought it would be a simple thing, but no, no, they, they went through that. But And Umfleby as CEO, um, he was CEO of the fort, but it was then an artillery school. So they were using uh, guns that faced to sea, but also uh, portable artillery on the parade ground, uh, moving with them. Uh, I mentioned Coxon earlier who was a cadet, he later took over uh, under Monash. He was appointed um, in charge of artillery. And um, Coxon um, discovered that artillery on the Western Front, of which there was quite a lot, behaved differently there in their weather and environment than it did at home when they trained with it. And had he not made that realisation, our our uh, artillery would not have been as accurate as it, as it became, as quickly as it became. Hmm. There's interesting people lurking around. We've um, There are some fantastic books. There's a book called uh, Murder at the Fort by Dr. Bob Marmion that is about a murder, obviously, that happened at the fort uh, during World War II, a young sentry 
Um, and that had, again, has all those sort of rumours to it that he was taken by the Japanese. You know, they came in the midgets or whatever into the bay and all those sort of things. Again, no evidence. It's much more complicated than that. Um, but there's a lot... There, there was a lot of defence at the time. I mean, the, the idea of the fort, which was kind of uh, redundant by the time it was built, because it's built with with uh, a dry moat on the outside and a keep, and it's sort of ready for land uh, siege, but it's on a bluff uh, look, overlooking the ocean. Um, so was never really going to get attacked in, in, in that way. But it was all about Melbourne and Melbourne's gold. Uh, something that we don't talk about so much anymore, maybe we're not all aware of it, but at the time, uh, certainly the 1880s, Melbourne was possibly the richest uh, city in the world based on its, uh, its gold um, coming out of the gold fields. Um, and during the American Civil War, the Confederate ship, the Shenandoah, docked for repairs, and there was a, a few issues there. But uh, the ship left Melbourne, uh, minus some of its original crew who had taken the opportunity to dig for gold. So there is about half a dozen or more Australians who technically served and fought in the American Civil War. Hmm. Um, the uh, the, the uh, fort's current purpose is uh, an archive, as well as having quite a uh, an excellent museum inside. It's previously been the home of the Soldier Career Management Agency, which is now relocated to Canberra as well. But uh, there's the Army History Units in there and the Defence Archive Centre. Uh, there's even a, a great troop of air cadets inside the fort, although you know it's an army base, but we, we like to share. So even, um, even even though a museum today, it is still used from a from a defence purpose perspective. Yes, it is still a still a defence base. It is considered active, although there aren't that many uh, soldiers. But everyone in there is either uh, employed by the public service under defence, Department of Defence, or um, reservist or, or, or soldier. There's uh, the museum has a, a fantastic team. Um, I could, I could brag all day about the volunteers because help train them, but the actual management, the army, people in the army, I don't know if you're aware of the Australian Army History Unit, but uh, their work is just, just amazing across the board. Um, and their objective is to keep the historical knowledge to train future soldiers. Um, that's... Uh, uh, well, I think it's a, it's a good idea. Um, how effective they are at it is um, it, it, it can easily be judged by when you visit one of the Army History Museums around Australia. Mm. And almost all of them are open to the public, even though they are not created for the public in mind. Um, some of them, uh, they're on Army bases, so you go to Bandiana or Puckapunyal and, and, and there's close by to each other, but there's about seven different museums on that base for different, uh, there's artillery and and different elements. 
um, and basically they are not just a place to display memorabilia, but also to educate uh, future soldiers. And uh, but also to emphasise, Fort Queenscliff, the actual museum, is open to the public. It is, yeah. Uh, you have to go on a, on a uh, scheduled tour, um, and the tours run every weekend. There is a day tour, but the day tour during the weekdays doesn't go to the museum uh, except on school holidays, public holidays. Um, that's a complicated arrangement, but there needs to be somebody there from the army to open the museum because it's their mm. museum. The, tour, the, the tours are, uh, are a support. Um, tour takes about an hour and a half as you wander around the grounds and they tell you about the fact that there's over two kilometres of tunnels and, and that you're walking over, um, yeah, it's an amazing sight, and uh, I, I really can't do, do it justice. But one of the things that we have tried to establish is a number of different styles of gun that were mounted on Port Phillip defences, and we kind of have a little bit of everything. Yeah. So you can see the different styles, um, and then you get into we have we have a disappearing gun um, as well, which is a kind of a novelty in a way. Do we know, obviously we've spoken about the gun at Fort Nepean and the opening shots mm. at World War One. but do we know if any shots were fired, so to speak, in anger from Fort Queenscliff itself? No, no, nothing uh, that... Um, in fact, apart from that particular shot, there is no record of any shots from any of the uh, Port Phillip defences um, other than, than uh, training exercises. I mean, certainly during the um, latter part of the, the 19th century, training was quite regular. Uh, we still have a signal battery that we can occasionally fire. Uh, and all we're really doing there is scaring freighters. But um, no, other than that, that first shot on the faults, the rest is uh, they've um, been more decorative yeah. you, you also yeah. mentioned before when, when we were talking about uh, Lieutenant Colonel Umpleby that Monash mm. was in fact a, a subordinate of his at one stage yes he was a cadet um, we don't know, we don't have much about that particular era in terms of archive material that would, wouldn't be kept, but he is in the register of of um, the volunteer artillery, uh, which is in the Fort Queenscliff collection. Uh, it's not on display in the museum because it's handwritten and uh, quite getting faint as, uh, over time. But um, this is a sort of a it's a large ledger book, and it has a serial number for the person and then their name. And then it might have distinguishing marks, so fair hair, scar on left cheek, that sort of thing. Um, and uh, it's quite an interesting uh, document just to, to, to look at because you start looking, going down and realize, seeing these names like, um, for be like Monash Coxon, um, I'm trying to remember some of the others, but th th there is, as you flick through, and it's been very interesting when people have contacted us uh, trying to do research. One of the first things we'll do is look at the nominal role. Because um, if they're not in the nominal role, it's unlikely that they served there during a, 
during uh, pre-Federation. Mm. The interesting thing is that there is a lot of, certainly First World War and Second World War, we get a lot of visitors who say, oh, so-and-so, my family served here, and we go and look them up and find that they didn't. But where it gets, where the confusion comes is that Fort Queenscliff being the the, the uh, fire command base, if you like, was also uh, noted as the location in Victoria for recruitment. So you could sign your paperwork in Warrnambool, as an example, but you'll be listed as as enlisting at Queenscliff mm. before the paperwork went up. Um, so over the years, we've had a lot of different people come to us with, with different things and, and, and different stories, and we've been able to confirm in most cases and occasionally just uh, say, well, we've got no record, but we do know this. Mm. And uh, to a lot of research over the years, there is a, quite a, uh, a list of... The museum itself holds a list of certainly the... Uh, volunteer artillery, and uh, people may not be aware, but at that time there were also militias, sold uh, rifle militias, but there were none in Queenscliff. Mm. It was all artillery. They were effectively army, but they were using naval guns, probably because uh, they were uh, the right thing to do. We have some of the guns from the Nelson on display. They have a whole history of their own. Uh, the Nelson was a uh, a battleship bought by the Victorian Navy. Uh, the Victorian Navy had a few vessels, most notably the um, the Nelson and the Cerberus, mm. um, which is uh, sunk, as you know, off uh, in the away. bay there. Yeah. Uh, I'm not sure filling it with concrete is going to improve anything, so I, don't, I think that idea has recently been um, knocked on the head. But... Um, when the Nelson was sort of decommissioned, they put all the guns, they took all the guns off it, and it had about 48 of them, I can't remember, but they moved them around the state and dropped them off in various towns as sort of, you know, as a symbol. And there were some arguments from various towns that why were they pointing in a particular direction. Um, the two we have, again, another book by Dr. Bob Mullion, um, these guns were, these barrels were found in the tip in Bendigo and they're on loan from the Bendigo Council uh, and we've made a restored carriage and carriages and put them on there which was an adventure um, but these two barrels used to be outside the town hall right? and they were then turned into sort of car park buttresses because they're a little bit too triumphalist, you know, sticking out their proud, pointing away at other towns. Um, then eventually that was still considered a little bit old-fashioned, so they were just dumped. And these were the, and Navy, was, the, the, these were the former Navy guns you were talking about? Yeah, the, 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 the guns, the uh, 64-pounders, I think they are. Mm. Um, and the... Uh, Dr. Marmion and a few others were involved in uh, excavating them, and uh, they've been restored to uh, to a visual glory uh, outside the oldest building inside the fort, which was the uh, lighthouse keeper's residence, uh, post office, uh, and telegraph station. 
which is the museum office space. Yeah. Uh, it's great to be, you know, in a building that old. Yeah. <laughs> and um, uh, they are there. Uh, we, I won't go into the dates because it gives too much information away, but we did invite the heritage minister at the time to come and launch them. But uh, that was a little bit cheeky because they previously sent us a letter saying return them to the tip. Um, they weren't going to help us out with mm. the heritage. So we just resurrected them ourselves and said, come and launch them. Um, which didn't happen. But uh, it's the kind of... Uh, there is a number of uh, books and websites and things that talk about where all these guns are placed around the, the state, but most of them, or certainly many of them, aren't where they used to be, if that makes any sense. They're, they're, they've... Uh, we sort of got over this uh, uh, memorialising, I think some people call it, and it's, it's kind of sad. I think you, you lose your past when uh, when an old gun barrel is taken away. Why was it there in the first place? Mm. You know, um, now, these things uh, were, were never used in aggression, um, but they tell of a time when the when the state was wealthy, when the state was needing to be protected, um, one of the old stories about the fort, of course, is we have all this gold, but it was built to protect us from the Russians. Mm. Because um, uh, sort of during the Crimean War, and they can, if people don't know where that is, they should look it up now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so there's... Um, there's a lot more to to the defence. I'm I'm uh, of Queen uh, of Victoria and Queenscliff. I'm a bit useless at the moment on it. I'm, I'm, um, but one of your current roles now, you're the secretary of the Military History Heritage Victoria Inc. The association yes, that we were introduced yes. to them in podcast number eight. Just tell us a little bit yes. about the association again, and where can people go to find out more about the association? Okay. Well, MHHV, um, I was invited to a meeting when I was uh, involved with Fort Queenscliff, and uh, they'd been around for a little, for about a year, and um, I, I went to one of their uh, presentations and thought, this is really interesting. They're, they're, they're talking about Victorian military history, but not in the... Uh, colonial sense, and I wanted to learn more. I, I, I am from Geelong, but I grew up in Canberra, so I spent a lot of time walking through various iterations of the War Memorial. And so I, I had this interest, and um, I was invited uh, onto the committee, and uh, I've been looking after the website and writing content and also putting up other content. It's very easy to find military history and heritage it's www.mhhv.org.au, uh, so MHHV, and um, you can go on there anytime and uh, you'll see a bunch of uh, events from our members that, that um, they might be wanting to promote, but also there's just short of 5,000 articles 
the colonial to 1899, Boer War to 1914, World War One to 1939. And you can go in there and search content and find uh, material written both by professional historians and by the amateurs who have done the work. Um, but if you're interested in, in, in finding out about other bits of military history in Victoria, you can, as I said, you can go to the, the, to the events page and have a look at what's coming up, who's doing what. There's a ceremony to mark the end of the war at Gallipoli at the Shrine um, on the, in four days' time on the 20th, as an example, um, that's uh, sort of put on by the Shrine, but also the Friends of Gallipoli. And the, um, there's a, a Turkish community um, that are involved. We, we do our own, we do one or two conferences a year, um, but during throughout the year, we have uh, speaker presentations, and in February uh, this, next year, we have uh, Michael Veach, the uh, actor, presenter, and author, um, talking to us about Turning Point, the Battle for Milne Bay in 1942, which is a, a new book of his. Mm. Um, and you can also read on there about Unsleby, and in particular, the story about how we went about creating the new memorial for him, uh, which I'm sure Garth has discussed with you. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, three and a half thousand dollars sounds like a lot of money, but it was a bargain for what we ended up uh, getting. Um, the other thing about that story is that, and I'm, I'm, I don't know, I can't recall whether Garth mentioned it, but when he came to Fort Queenscliff, I, I took him on a tour. And that's how we met. And I wasn't on the committee at that stage. And he was with a couple of other people. And um, I was showing him everything I could find on Umphilby because they'd, they'd raised it. And um, he was t telling me about things that, uh, about the grave. He showed us some photographs. And uh, it, it's taken about 15 years mm. to get to the point where it is now. And the future hope is that we can combine and, and tell better the story of pre-federation defense of victoria through one man because he he was at all the locations and there's a little bit of a push to to tell his story or parts of it at each of those locations you can go to a defense site in victoria like bendigo ballarat or you know, even the Port Ferry Battery, and there'll be a little bit about Umphilby there. And then you can follow the trail. Kind of an odd thing to have in a collection, but we have the original tombstone that was placed on Umphilby's grave that was made, carved, it's just a block of stone that was carved, I believe, with a butter knife by one of his colleagues, and it was later discarded we've been able to secure it and keep it safe. Well, that's a fascinating insight into a little bit of Australia's and Victoria's military history. Jason, thank you so much for your time today. That's the podcast for today. You can find the relevant links to the podcast on our Facebook page. We're keen to hear your feedback. Leave a comment on our Facebook page. And if you're listening to us via iTunes, please leave a review. You can also email us at info at thanksforyourservice.net. 
If you're interested in sponsorship or support of this podcast, head to our website or email us. You can also support us via Patreon. The link is www.patreon.com. Thanks for your service. Thanks for listening.